Good afternoon, everyone. Many people have a vague idea that perhaps God does exist, but are not sure. Others are confident that God does exist, but their ideas about God are confused and misinformed. Throughout history, only a relative few have known the real God. Most, if they've worshipped any God at all, have worshipped idols, false gods, the work of men's hands and figments of human imagination. Would you like to not only know that God does in fact exist, but understand as few others in history have what he is really like? Would you like to have an intimate relationship with the true God, the one who created the universe and in whose power is the destiny of nations? Today I'm going to tell you how you can find out and know the true God because scripture tells us that if you truly seek God, you will find him. The title of today's sermon is Seek God. If you already have some acquaintance with the true God, are you making progress spiritually? Are you growing in spiritual knowledge and understanding? Is your faith stronger than it was a year ago or two years ago? Do you know for certain that God hears your prayers? Or do you often feel like your prayers are unheard, unanswered, ineffectual? If you are in a spiritual fog or feel spiritually isolated, weak, or that you're not making progress, then that's an indication that you need to more diligently seek God and do it in the right way. Not uncommonly, individuals blame God for their own lack of faith and spiritual progress, implying that they've done everything necessary, but God has let them down. Some have had the truth freely available to them for years, yet allege that God has not called them because they are not willing to really seek God and personally commit themselves to Him. God repeatedly called the entire nation of Israel in ancient times. The entire nation was called. As we read in Deuteronomy 5 beginning verse 1, Deuteronomy 5 verse 1 it says, Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. Notice that Moses called all Israel, God called them through his servant Moses. And he told them what they needed to do to please God. In Isaiah 48 and verse 12, Isaiah 48 and verse 12, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah and he says, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. My called. I am he, I am the first, and I am also the last. So notice that he speaks to Israel, the whole nation, the people of Israel, the descendants of Jacob. And he says they are his called, the ones he has called. In Jeremiah 7 and verse 13, Jeremiah 7 and verse 13, it says, And now because you have done all these works, says the Lord, 
And I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. So he's speaking to the people of Israel and he called them, but they did not answer. Going on in verse 23 of Jeremiah 7, verse 23, but this is what I commanded them saying, Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day. I have even sent to you my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them, yet they did not obey me nor incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers, therefore you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you. You shall also call to them, but they will not answer you. So God is instructing the prophet Jeremiah to call to them, the whole nation. But he said, because he knew their hearts, he said, they're not going to answer you. Most of them are not going to respond, in other words. So you shall say to them, this is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord, their God, nor receive correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. So they were called, but they were not willing to hear what God was saying to them. In Jeremiah 11 and verse 7, Jeremiah 11, beginning with verse 7, God says through the prophet, For I earnestly exhorted your fathers in the day I brought them up out of the land of Egypt until this day, rising early and exhorting them, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. Therefore I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but which they have not done. So God commanded them what they were to do, but they refused to do it. Jeremiah 35, verse 17. Jeremiah 35, verse 17. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on Judah and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the doom that I have pronounced against them because I have spoken to them but they have not heard, I have called, I have called to them, but they have not answered. Hosea chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Hosea 11 and verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Speaking of Israel. Out of Egypt I called my son. As they called them, and that's speaking of the prophets which God sent to call them on his behalf, as they called them, so they went from them. In other words, as the prophets called to them, the people turned back and rejected their message. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. Notice he says he drew them. He drew them with gentle cords. He was drawing them to him by his 
care for them, the things that he did to bless them and to lead them in the way that they were to go. And he said, I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. He delivered them. He rescued them from slavery. I stooped and fed them. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refused to repent. And we read in Acts 17, verse 30, Acts 17, verse 30, where it says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. God commands all men everywhere to repent. And also God instructed his apostles to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, every human being on the face of the earth. That was their commission. So if you are hearing this, God has given you access to the truth. The truth that many have never yet heard. Or I should say never had. Never had an understanding of. But you must also actively seek God. And keep on seeking Him as long as you live. Or what you have, the truth, the knowledge of the truth, may slip right through your fingers. Or right through your mind your brain maybe I should say years ago when I mentioned in a sermon that if you seek God you can find him it was reported to me afterward that a woman in the congregation said to another member that the statement I made is false and that you cannot seek God was her view you cannot seek God now I didn't actually hear directly the woman in question make the statement attributed to her so I don't know for certain that the report given me was accurate I believe it probably was but I don't know for absolute certain since I didn't hear her with my own ears however it was already known to me that this same woman was of the opinion that God has picked out only a select few to call and everyone else is cut off from God and has no hope of having a saving relationship with God in this age. The idea is that if God has picked you out to call, then he opens your mind, as they say, and you understand the truth in spite of yourself. Unfortunately, that is a common belief in among a number of people in various churches who have similar ideas, including many of the various Church of God groups. And they believe that because they do not consult the Word of God and study it carefully with a mind open to the truth, but simply rely on what men say, whether right or wrong. And this idea that only a few are called in this age is a pernicious lie that has spread among many people in and out of the church of God. And when you believe that, it blinds you to some important information about how God deals with people and what he expects of them, what he expects of you even, as well as other people. It's also a calumny against God. And frankly, it's an excuse. It's an excuse to blame God because people are ignorant and disobedient to his word. 
when he gives people every opportunity, every reasonable opportunity to understand the truth, just as he did the people of Israel. And certainly he gave them the opportunity above all other people. He called the whole nation. He instructed them. He even spoke the words directly to them from Mount Sinai. They had absolutely no excuse for their behavior. There are a number of scriptures that specifically address the subject of seeking God. Anyone who says that you cannot seek God evidently has never read the scriptures or simply read over many scriptures that address that question. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon and king of Judah, failed spiritually and he did evil. As we read in 2 Chronicles 12 verse 14, it says he, that is Rehoboam, did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. Why did he do evil? Because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. It wasn't because God didn't call him or give him an opportunity to obey. It is because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. On the other hand, we read about Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, beginning with verse 3. 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 3, Now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat, who was a later king following Rehoboam, because he walked in the former ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, the false gods, but sought the God of his father. So in other words, people have a choice. You can seek after false gods and idols and the ways of this world, or you can seek God. And Jehoshaphat chose to seek the God of his father, David, and he walked in his commandments, as it says, and not according to the acts of Israel. In other words, he didn't just follow the crowd, the the popular culture in the nation of, of, at, at that time of Israel, the northern kingdom, but he sought God. During Jehoshaphat's reign, a great army came up from the south to invade the kingdom. And Jehoshaphat was moved with fear to seek God even more in the crisis in fasting and prayer, as did the whole nation. And God heard them and they were saved. As we read in Second Chronicles 20 and verse 3, 2 Chronicles 20 beginning in verse 3, the scripture I read earlier was actually Second Chronicles 17 and verse 3. This is Second Chronicles 20 and verse 3 where it says, Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord Notice it says he feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. So we see that the entire nation was moved at that time because of the threat from the south to seek God. Second Chronicles 20 and verse 30 after God intervened for them because they had turned to seek him 
and he intervened for them. It says, Then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. So God, because of the nation's attitude of seeking God, and no doubt accompanied by repentance on the part of many, then he was willing to intervene and save them from destruction from this horde that came up from the south. We're told in Isaiah 45, verse 19, Isaiah 45 and verse 19, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. Notice what God says. He says, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I haven't hidden my word, my instructions from mankind is what he's saying. He had made himself known to human beings at a number of times in the course of history. He goes on to say, I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. So God told the people of Israel to seek him And he did not say that in vain. He didn't say it just to hear his teeth rattle, so to speak. He wasn't saying it just as some kind of deception or trick. Because God promises that if you seek him, you will find him. He promises that if you seek him genuinely, seek him in the way the Bible instructs that you will find him. In 2 Chronicles 15 and verse 1, 2 Chronicles 15 and verse 1, it says, Now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if You forsake him, he will forsake you. Asa was the king at that time. And God said to Asa through the prophet, If you seek him, he will be found by you. And that's a message for anybody. Subsequently, Asa gathered all the people of Judah and Benjamin and many from some of the other tribes of Israel. And it says in 2 Chronicles 15, beginning verse 12. 2 Chronicles 15, verse 12. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel was to be put to death whether small or great, whether man or woman. Then they took an oath before the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting and trumpets and ram's horns. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with all their soul. And he was found by them. And the Lord gave them rest all around. So this was one of the few periods in the history of Israel and Judah that the whole nation, at least the nation of Judah in this case, 
along with some of the other Israelites, actually turned to God and sought Him genuinely. And, and God, because of their genuineness and sincerity and their wholeheartedness in seeking Him, He gave them rest from their enemies and blessed them. The false idea commonly taught by some churches is that God has predestined some individuals to salvation and He has predestined others, many others, the vast majority in fact, to perish in hell. And there's nothing one can do to change the outcome God has predetermined for him according to this evil and perverse doctrine, which is, again, a calumny against God. And it is a lie. We read in Psalm 7 and verse 1 that God is a just judge. I had a friend when I was young, younger, in uh, high school and college, who I worked with, and he and I, I, I liked this uh, individual a great deal. We got along well, but we had the exact opposite views on a number of uh, subjects, and he claimed to be an atheist. Maybe he was, I guess, in his own mind, but he told me one time that if that if there is a God, then he would spit in his face because of the idea that God sends vast numbers of people to hell to burn and be tortured for eternity who never had a real chance for salvation, which is exactly what that doctrine teaches. So he did not view God as a just God and many other people have had this, shared the same opinion because of such doctrines as this. And who can blame them if, if they don't know any better? Now they should know better because if he had wanted to study the Bible and actually believe what the Bible says about God, he could have. He didn't have to believe what other people say. But according to Scripture, God is a just judge and we're assured in Psalm 136 and verse 1 that God is good. As we read there, it says, for His mercy endures forever. God is good for His mercy endures forever. Now, would a just and merciful God create billions of human beings and predestine most of them to failure and, as many believe, eternal torture in hell. And if you read what many Protestant ministers have said about hell and the torture there, it is unbelievable what they conceive of is how God is going to treat people for eternity. So would a just and merciful God treat people that way? The answer is no, quite the opposite. The ultimate destiny or purpose for which God created mankind is that humans might be changed fully into his likeness, his sons and his eternal kingdom. In John 1, chapter 10, uh, John 1, verse 10, John 1 and verse 10, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. 
he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Meaning he came to his own people, the Jewish nation. And they did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So, God created human beings to have a relationship with him in a very intimate way as members of his divine family. The arrow is tense of verbs in the original Greek in the, these verses I read denote action not limited to the past, present, or future. And considering the Greek verbs in the arrowist tense in the passage I just quoted, a better translation would be as many as receive him, as many as receive him, so this isn't just speaking in the past, this is speaking in the past, present, and future. As many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, and that includes any and everybody alive today or in the past or in the future. As many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become children of God to those who genuinely believe in his name. In other words, if you receive Christ according to the terms outlined in Scripture, truly believing in, in him and yielding your will to his, which is implied by the term believing in him, if you really believe in him, you're going to do his will. You're going to submit to him. And you will seek to follow his commands. That's what it means when it says believing in Christ. It's not just an empty, fruitless belief. It, it is a genuine, heartfelt conviction that is followed by action and deeds. Yielding your will to his and seeking to follow his commands. And if you do that, you're given the right to become a child of God in the fullest sense possible. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. And again, most of the verbs in this passage of Scripture in the original Greek are in the arrowist tense, which action is not limited to the past, present, or future. And the term saved us is more accurately translated saves us. Where he says called us would better be translated calls us. Where it says was given should be is given. And Jesus Christ has not abolished death, 
which ought to be obvious since many people are still in their graves, but rather that Jesus Christ abolishes death. He abolishes death and he brings life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel is a message of life and immortality. And the salvation we offered is according to God's eternal purpose. That is the eternal purpose for which God created mankind. We're told in Ephesians 3 and verse 11 that eternal purpose is accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What God has accomplished or is accomplishing in Jesus Christ is the purpose for which all mankind is created. God's purpose is the salvation, not the destruction of mankind. And that has been and is being accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. He was resurrected to eternal life in the very image of the Father. And that is the purpose for which all mankind is created. The word translated predestined or similar terms in various English translations of the New Testament in passages where the, uh, we, we find that translation is from prohorizo or cognate words Greek prohorizo the Greek word pro or pro commonly means before or prior and the word Horizo is a geographical term which means properly to mark out a boundary. It's the source from which we get the word horizon in English. It means to mark out a boundary. The horizon is the boundary of what you can see over with through with your eyes to the as far as the earth's surface is concerned. And so, prorizo, translated predestined, has to do with an inheritance which God purposed to give us ahead of time. It has to do with God's eternal purpose. That's what predestination is. It's the eternal purpose of God for human beings. And it is reflected in how God dealt with Israel in a physical way. God purposed to give the seed of Abraham through Jacob or Israel an inheritance in the land of Canaan. That was their destiny. That's what God had determined would be done, that they would be given an inheritance in the land of Canaan. So in that sense, they were predestined to receive that inheritance. And so they were delivered from bondage in Egypt hundreds of years after God had made, first made these promises to Abraham and having been predestined to inherit the land that God had promised them, that was their destiny. And yet, although that was their destiny, the destiny that God had in mind for them, many of them, of the generation of those who were brought out of Egypt, failed to fulfill it because they lacked faith. And you can read more about that in detail in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 as well as other scriptures. 
So in a similar way, God has predestined mankind to salvation. That is, that is God's purpose and that is God's will for mankind. His will is for human beings, every human being, to have salvation in His kingdom. As we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Notice it doesn't say God desires a few men or some men to be saved and all others to go to hell to be tortured for eternity. It says God desires all men to be saved. And in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, it says the Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Now, notice as we read in a moment, Ephesians 1 and verse 11, how Paul connects redemption with the idea of having obtained, or as the Greek allows, having been assigned by law or by God's will, as the Israelites in Canaan, an inheritance. When the people of Israel went into the land, Lots were cast and they were assigned their individual plots of ground as their inheritance by lot. And that inheritance was the one predestined or marked out ahead of time for those who were to receive it, the people of Israel. So we read in Ephesians 1 and verse 11, in him that is in Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So the inheritance that God has in mind for those who are converted is the one that he has purposed for them beforehand from the beginning actually from even before the earth was created. Going on in verse 12, it says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. So, is this inheritance limited to the relatively small number who are among those who have first trusted in Christ, as Paul mentioned in verse 12? No. He said we who first trusted in Christ, because there are many others to follow who will, in due time, also share the same faith. Paul speaks of himself and others as those who had first trusted in Christ before, actually before the Ephesian converts he was writing to, because he came to those people and preached the gospel to them after he himself and others had first, that is before they, had trusted in Christ. And then later the Ephesian converts who were, the Ephesian church was uh, in a Greek city, but it was composed of Gentiles and Jews. The Ephesian converts also trusted after they heard the gospel and believed it, as we read in verse 13 of Ephesians 1. In him, in him you also trusted 
after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Moreover, Paul also explains in this same chapter that God's purpose is bigger than any one small congregation or group of people. It says in Ephesians 1, beginning with verse 9, that God's purpose in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. So we read in verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. So God's purpose is to gather together in him through Christ all things. And all things includes all mankind, all Israelites, all Gentiles. We read in Jeremiah 3 and verse 17. Jeremiah 3 and verse 17. At that time, speaking of the future, when Christ has established his throne on the earth, at that time Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem, no more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. In those days the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given as an inheritance to your fathers. But I said, how can I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage of the hosts of nations? And I said, you shall call me father and not turn away from me. Notice he's going to place Israel back in their land and he is the hosts of nations. His vision is not limited to just Israel. It includes Israel, but it encompasses all mankind. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 17, John, 1 John 2 and verse 17, it says, the world is passing away, the world being this human-devised uh, culture and society that is following in the path of Satan the devil and are the children of the devil in that sense. The world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. The idea that one has no control over his own destiny has often been prominent in heathen false religion. But it is the opposite of the truth. Destiny in the sense we are using it is not the same as fate. Commonly used as inevitable and uncontrollable. Destiny, as I'm using the term, is the outcome God desires for you. The destiny, the inheritance that God makes possible. But you have a choice in the matter. You have a choice in the matter. You have choices to make. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19. 
Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, God said to Israel, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. So they were given a choice, life or death, blessing or cursing. And God told them, make the right choice so that you can live and your descendants can live. So they had a choice in the matter. Their destiny was one that they could choose. God had in mind a destiny for them, but they could choose something else if they had a mind to. Heathen Greek and Roman poets often represented the decrees of the goddesses of fate as immutable, implacable, and irrevocable. Often one's fate was seen as having been determined at birth. Although some ancient writers viewed one's fate as being influenced by his own behavior for good or ill, humans were often viewed as having little or no control over their own destiny. Superstitious belief in fate or luck expressed through astrology or other means was widespread during the Middle Ages the so-called, in the so-called Christian world, which was anything but Christian in many ways. But uh, false ideas about predestination were further developed by early Protestant leaders. Martin Luther, for example, promoted the, the idea that, quoting a biography of Luther by John Dillenberger, where it says, according to Luther, who should and who should not have faith, who should conquer sin and who should not be able to do so, is a matter taken out of our hands and is solely at God's disposal. John Calvin, another famous Protestant leader, also taught that some are predestined to faith and salvation and some to damnation, and men are powerless to affect the destiny God has decreed. But as we've seen, the truth, according to God's word, is far different. God wants, indeed he commands all, to repent he commands all to repent as we read in Second Peter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And as we read earlier in Acts 17 and verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And God told the people of Israel that if they turned from his laws and rebelled, he would send upon them tribulation and allow their enemies to overrun them and take them captive. Notice what he said to them as a warning in Deuteronomy 4, beginning in verse 25. Deuteronomy 4, verse 25. When you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and act corruptly, and make a carved image in the form of anything, and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God, to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, that I will that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. 
and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you shall be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you and there you will serve gods the work of men's hands wood and stone which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul when you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice for the Lord your God is a merciful God he will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them now notice this prophecy was not just for ancient times but it was also to be fulfilled in the latter days. That is, in the days that we're living in, the end of this age, which is fast approaching. Although we don't know exactly how long that will take for the final end to come of this age, but we're in the latter days. And this prophecy will be fulfilled in these latter days at some point. And the Bible gives us a, quite a bit of information about what's going to happen. Because of sins and a refusal to genuinely seek God, a tribulation lies in store for the modern nations, largely made up of people, peoples descended from Israel, which includes the United States and Great Britain and other nations. And the reason for such tribulation the reason God is going to bring it is not only to punish wickedness and disobedience, murder and all kinds of other evils, but it is to bring the people of Israel to the point where they're genuinely willing to seek God. As we read here, when they're in distress, then they will, many of them will turn to God. And God said to Israel in verse, beginning with verse 29, from there in captivity, when they are captive in a foreign nation, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul and turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice. And the calamities of the latter days are not limited to the people of Israel. Before the end of this age, the whole world will be engulfed in cataclysms unprecedented in human history for similar reasons because the nations are walking in a path of destruction and rebellion against God. Fortunately, you don't have to wait for disaster to come upon you before you decide to seek God. Unfortunately for many, it will then be too late to seek God in this age because their lives will be over. Vast numbers of people will die in these calamities, in the tribulation. But the good news is that the vast majority of mankind will come out of their graves in the general resurrection after the millennium and they will have a chance then to know God and finally repent of their sins.
But those who seek God now and serve Him in this age will take part in the better resurrection and will serve with Christ throughout the millennium. We read in Isaiah 55, beginning with verse 6, Isaiah 55, verse 6, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. If you're drawing breath, it's not too late to seek God. By the way, maybe you've noticed how many times I've read a command to seek God. So how could anyone say you cannot seek God? It is a testimony to how blind people can be if they uh, want to be blind. Genuinely seeking God is the essence of faith in action. For to please God, one must believe that He is, as we read in Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Hebrews 11 and verse 6, we must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him who diligently seek him so how can you seek God what what does that mean to seek God how do you do that seeking and finding God is within your capability but it does take diligent and persistent effort and an exercise of your own will remember we just read that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him and diligence implies persistent effort. It requires an exercise of your own will. You've got to want to find God in order to seek Him successfully. And there are specific tools that you can use to effectively seek God. And they include genuine heartfelt prayer, regular and focused Bible study, fasting to humble yourself before God, repentance, and obedience to God's commandments. To have a meaningful relationship with God, one must wholeheartedly seek God. We read, we read in Jeremiah 29, verse, beginning with verse 12, that when you seek me, you, uh, that when you, when you will seek me, when you search for me, with all your heart, you will find God. Seeking God must be the number one priority in our lives. Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 33, Matthew 6, verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's just another way of saying seek God, but He's more specific. He says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added to you, all the other things that you have need of. God is not pleased with the superficial and self-serving religious posturing so common in the world. God requires of us genuine humility before Him and commitment to yielding to His word. We read in Isaiah 66 and verse 2, Isaiah 66 and verse 2, On this one will I look. Or in other words, this is the kind of person I'm looking for. This is the kind of person 
that I am seeking to have a relationship with on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Daniel is an example of one who sought God in prayer wholeheartedly. We read in Daniel 9 and verse 3, Daniel 9 and verse 3, it says, With fasting, sackcloth, and ashes, Daniel sought God in prayer and applying an attitude of genuine humility on his part. Daniel made a habit of daily prayer, customarily kneeling before God and praying three times a day, as we read in Daniel 6 and verse 10. David also prayed regularly three times a day, as we read in Psalm 55 and verse 17. Paul admonished us to be praying always in Ephesians 6 and verse 18, or at all seasons, as the Greek could be rendered, which means, in other words, pray every day. Prayers are, our prayers are to be persistent and outgoing with thanksgiving, focused not just on ourselves, thinking selfishly and praying just for things we want, but we need to focus our prayers outward toward God and toward the needs of others and for God's work, as well as making uh, petitions for the things that we might have need of. Fasting is another important tool to be used in seeking God. Fasting in the Bible is not the watered-down so-called fast common in some circles, such as eating only one full meal a day, supplemented by snacks, which is how some so-called Christian churches define a, a fast. You eat one meal a day supplemented by snacks. That's not a fast according to Scripture. Or giving up soda pop or certain kinds of meats for a day. That's not a fast. A real fast for spiritual purposes as described in the Bible, involves going without food and water for an extended period of time. It may be part of a day. It could be a full 24-hour days. In some cases, it could be several days. In, in a few cases, in the case of Moses and, and Elijah and Christ, each of them fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, which physically and human, humanly is impossible to do without dying. Others have tried that and they have died in the process. And God doesn't expect you to try to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. But we should be fasting occasionally or perhaps more often than occasionally as one of the tools by which we can seek and find God. Fasting for a person in generally good health, usually presents no serious health problems. And in fact, intermittent fasting may not only be beneficial from a spiritual standpoint, but as various physicians have pointed out, it is known to pro promote physical health as well. But if you have serious health problems, such as hypoglycemia, diabetes, or other health conditions that may be exacerbated by fasting, you should exercise caution and follow the advice of a competent health care professional. As discussed earlier, when the righteous king Jehoshaphat heard of armies coming against his nation, he feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast. 
throughout all Judah. Second Chronicles 20 and verse 3. God heard their plea and delivered them. As Ezra was leading a group of people out of Babylon back to their homeland after the Babylonian captivity, he proclaimed a fast. And as we read in, in Ezra 8, beginning with verse 21, he proclaimed a fast that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request of the king, that is the Persian king, an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road because we had spoken to the king saying the hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek Him. But His power and His wrath are against all those who forsake Him. So we fasted and entreated our God for this and He answered our prayer. Fasting should be directed at preparing your heart to to hear God rather than being used as leverage to oblige God to hear you. Note that in his fasting, Ezra sought from God the right way. He wanted to understand God's will and what God would have him do. Essential to seeking God is also diligent Bible study. In Isaiah 8, beginning with verse 19, Isaiah 8 and verse 19, when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not the people seek their God? Should not the people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. How do you seek God one way is by consulting God's word. So how well do you know the Bible? How often do you study it? Asking God to give you understanding. Do we assume that what we're told about the Bible by those who claim to represent Christ is true simply because they claim to be speaking in Christ's name? That's an assumption we should not make. What we ought to do is search out the truth in the Scriptures ourselves by daily Bible study. Much of what you hear and read about the Bible is false. It's not true. A lot of it is corrupted by heathen, pagan ideas. And it's not in the Bible at all. In fact, it's directly contrary to what the Bible teaches. So you need to check it out for yourself. Bible study should not consist only of reading articles someone wrote about what the Bible supposedly says or means. Because, as I said, much of that may be false depending on what you're reading. But you should study and read the Bible yourself carefully and prayerfully so that you can know firsthand what the Bible actually says. God's laws are to be in our hearts and minds, as we're told numerous times in the Scripture, and they will be there only if we study the Scriptures and meditate on them. As we read in Romans 10 and verse 17, Romans 10 and verse 17, faith comes by hearing 
and hearing by the word of God. So if you want to strengthen your faith, ask for greater faith, but also spend more time studying the word of God. Repentance and obedience are necessary if you are to have a meaningful relationship with God. God reveals himself to those who abide in his word, that is, to those who faithfully keep it. Seeking God includes seeking out his requirements as revealed in his word and keeping them. Seeking God means turning from sin to obedience to his commandments. Falsely claiming to seek God while rejecting his word, as many do, is futile and leads to disaster. If you want to find a relationship with God, if you want to make, a, make spiritual progress, if you want to overcome your weaknesses and sins, which we all have, if you want to be in God's kingdom, seek God in the right way with all your heart, seek Him daily, and never cease to seek Him. And if you do that, you will find Him and your salvation will be assured.